Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, producer, engineer, and multi-instrumentalist, Jeff Burner. Jeff Burner was touring guitarist for the avant-garde rock band Psychic TV and has produced Boy George, Lenny Kay, Farrell Monch, and hundreds of independent artists like me. I first met Jeff nearly 20 years ago now in a cavernous, ramshackle, hand-built studio on the edge of Brooklyn's Bed-Stuy neighborhood. The occasion was the recording of the first Holiday Benefit album, a series of local all-star recordings I founded and led for years, which raised tens of thousands of dollars for youth literacy. Jeff was and is today a picture in contrasts, a towering, slender, six-foot-something figure of a man who is at once soft-spoken, thoughtful, and kind, while blisteringly hilarious, whip-smart, and deeply talented. Jeff navigated that room of posturing frontmen and part-time divas with ease, making us all feel at home and all feel like stars. Years later, I tapped Jeff to track vocals on my 2016 album, Great Lakes, then guitar and vocals on 2019's What's Left Behind. Jeff recorded sessions with Downstate Darlings and me, then produced vocals, played lead guitar, and mixed my new record, Constellations, from his new home base, Studio G, in Williamsburg. Making a record is a vulnerable thing. These are works in progress, half-finished dreams made manifest. Jeff is patient and thoughtful, gingerly coaxing peak performances, patiently digging into references, and capably translating vague ideas, humming and whistling into succinct, incandescent guitar parts. This week, Jeff and I talk about his first favorite songs growing up in bucolic Hopewell Junction, New York, the highs and lows of touring Europe and beyond with Psychic TV, building his studio empire, and working together on Constellations. So go ahead, take out those earplugs and listen closely. This is a deep and simple conversation about the love of music, the places it'll take you, and the people you'll meet. My father plays guitar, and one of my earliest memories is dancing while he played a couple chords. He had a Fender Jazzmaster at the time and a PV Backstage Plus. But I think my method of dancing at that point was just running around the living room coffee table in circles as fast as I could while he played, I think he was playing Willie and the Hand Jive and Sunshine of Your Love. I grew up in a, like a pretty musical household. My mother doesn't play, but there was a lot of music just being played in the house. I remember seeing the Dire Straits video, the video for Start Me Up. I definitely remember that, you know, playing with Matchbox cars and, and hearing that stuff go on in the background. Where were you? Where'd you grow up, man? Hopewell Junction, New York, which is a wonderful town of cul-de-sacs and Dunkin' Donuts. It's in the Hudson Valley. It's about a half hour outside of Poughkeepsie. It's a beautiful place. It's uh, also a very uh, non-liberal place. So was your dad a recreational, like hobby player and guitar player? Or yeah. was he like playing in bands and stuff? He was a disc jockey for years and years before I was born. And he gradually went into sort of like the sales and marketing side of media. So it was like radio and TV. Worked for radio stations and uh, cable vision and a few other local uh, and regional 
cable systems. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That explains a lot. There was always music on. There wasn't really a lot of so-called like classic rock radio. That had to be saved for me driving around in high school and being like, Floyd. <laughs> By the way, I'm still like, Floyd. Hearing a lot of blues and jazz and a lot of stuff that wasn't necessarily top 40 at the time, but also listening to, you know, Stevie Wonder and a ton of that stuff. Like my parents got married in 75. I combined their record collection. My mom had all of the original Beatles records. You know, my father had a great jazz collection. There's a, been a bunch of stuff that I've rebought just because I loved listening to it as a kid and still love it now. For me, it was like Carol King's Tapestry, man. You know, because you know, I'm 71, so yeah. that's like 72, 3, whatever. Yeah. James Taylor, that kind yeah. of thing, you know. All the Laurel Canyon stuff. Yeah, totally. Because yeah. you don't have a critical faculty and it's just much purer. And it ends up being oftentimes more revealing of who you really are in a fundamental way before you get hip enough to be like, and then I began to explore the right. I don't know, Dottist phase of whatever. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. I never yeah. left that. I still look right. pop. Yeah. To your point, it's also before you maybe have peers that are like, well, this that's not cool. It's like, that's not cool anymore. It's like, that's not indie or that's not punk enough. It's just like, who cares? What was the experience for you? I, I literally sat with headphones in front of a big Magnavox player. You know, like, how did it make you feel? What did it do for you? It made me realize I'd be making a middle income living for the rest of my life. No, um, no, no. No, uh, no I, there's certain things I remember like really hitting me hard. And I, I don't remember how old I was. I think it may have been one of the tapes, one side and Sergeant Pepper was on the other. I remember the way that the tape case smelled. I can smell it to this day. You open it up and whatever it is, maybe somebody spilled something in there. I just remember putting that on and putting on Come Together and listening to it in the dark and just not even knowing how to interpret it. Just being scared, but very intrigued. Yeah. Even before that, when I was younger, I remember getting completely obsessed with Sgt. Pepper, which was a big record for my parents. It's so weird to think about this because did you used to listen to music like before you went to sleep, like a Walkman or a Discman kind of thing? I had a bright orange radio shack, nine volt battery yeah. powered transistor radio. Yeah. And I was supposed to be asleep, but I would have WLS on in Chicago quietly, you know, mm -hmm. always. Yeah. Just straining to hear stuff. You know, obviously we don't have all the, all the distractions we have of today, but just being in that environment where it's like, okay, you're alone in your room, you're listening, it's dark. And it was just another world that was opening up to me. And I didn't understand all that was being said. I didn't, know what Lennon was saying when he said, I need a fix because I'm going down and happy. I was like, man, like this song's crazy. There's like three songs in one. Really parsing it through for the first time, just willingly listening, just taking in whatever. That just had a big impact on me. I, I think I just, I unconsciously responded very emotionally to it. Do you remember a time when you began reverse engineering what was happening or did that take a long time? I wasn't thinking about it at that point. I was thinking about that more later on. I started playing guitar when I was 11. The joke is when you're young, it's like, oh, you play bass because like you can't figure out the six string, so we gave you four. I think actually the bass playing is more important. But I started to think about that stuff when I started trying to form a band in sixth or seventh grade or just trying to find guys to play with. You're a classic, like actual garage band. A couple guys would come over and we sort of make a racket in the garage. And my parents were and are very supportive. I don't know what that must have sounded like 
trying to play all the songs on Nirvana's Incesticide, very wrong. <laughs> you yeah, know. and right there challenging enough for any listener, you know what I mean? In yeah. terms of their sort of discord or feedback or whatever. Right, right. It wasn't like we were rehearsing uh, violin sonatas. But my father played me a video of Stevie Ray Vaughan live at Austin City Limits. Mm-hmm. It just sent a lightning bolt through me in terms of, okay, there's so much heart and there's so much emotion involved and it's moving me. And again, I don't exactly know why. I had not lived the life of a bluesman then or now. Right. <laughs> My father had an old acoustic out in the garage and he showed me the riff to Sunshine of Your Love. Oh, wow. Da, Great. Da, yeah. da, 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 da. From there on out, it was really hitting the ground running. So I started playing, what, year 11 and sixth grade, I think. Those summers between sixth and seventh and seventh and eighth, we didn't have central air and I would be in heaven sitting in there and listening to records and trying to play along and trying to figure stuff out. Not knowing at the time I was actually working on my ear too, like learning how to hear things and figure stuff out, starting to read tablature. How quickly did you start finding like-minded dudes or dudettes to flesh out the sound, put the rhythm section in there? And... I joined a band freshman year of high school, Our Lady of Lords in Poughkeepsie, New York. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. I went to public school up until eighth grade and then went to Catholic school. I don't know if we had any originals off the bat, but we did covers. And we went and played the John Jay High School Battle of the Bands, and we won. Of course you did. What was the name of your band? Ivory Tower. Oh, that's pretty sweet. It's not so embarrassing at no, all. No, 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 no. Uh, Mine I, are I, awful. Every one of them. What was your first band? band? They wanted to be called Underground. And I was like, guys. And so I talked them into something much worse. And then in college, I was in a band, um, which we did. We played for three years and put out three records. We did okay. Called Smoky Jungle Frog. It's not Ivory Tower. I mean, Ivory Tower has like, you know, some heft and strength and like no, I mean, a solidness. I, I mean, heft know? and strength. You know, let's let's be clear. I, we did, I think, about a nine minute cover version of Come Together because everybody everybody wanted to play a solo. So I don't know if it was like heft and strength. In college, I was in a band for about fourteen minutes called Jive Turkey. Yeah, um, that's rough. Yeah, yeah. No, it was... It Although was I bet it could clean up at the fraternities and sororities. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it actually could no be one, just great marketing. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Drive Turkey's playing. They're doing 19 sets and there's 13 kegs of extremely right, cheap right, beer. Right, right, right. Two bucks per, per cup. Yeah, exactly. The red solo cups. Yeah, 100%. That was like my entire college career. Those are what made me think I was a rock star because you get 300 kids in an attic or in a basement who just yeah. thought you were the best thing since whatever. And you thought you were. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or I did, you know. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, did you really like that Stone Devil Pilots cover where we forgot to play the solo section and uh, we didn't remember the lyrics and uh, our bass player is so drunk he fell over. Yeah. Right, but they didn't notice because they was, were too. Yeah, exactly. They didn't even know that somebody fell on them. <laughs> but, you know, in a, in a weird sort of way, there's a real beauty to that because there's a purity to that. There's a reason why I think like five to 20 is so interesting to talk about in terms of formation because it sets a lot of the foundation of who we become. And part of it is that as a 50 year old, I find myself examining and interrogating mm -hmm. what parts of that were useful and what parts of that were problematic and then trying to get rid of the shit that was problematic, you know? Sure. Did you ever begin to dream of it as a thing you do all the time? I had no idea. I knew that I loved music. I knew that that was maybe one of the things I knew how to do kind of okay. 
I mean, I had a four track, but that's about it. I had recorded in studios with bands, but I didn't have a recording background at that point. I just went to college and my parents were very supportive and said, look, just go get your backup plan, get a degree, and then you can sort out what you want to do. I just wanted to play guitar and fall into a couple drum sets, but also have those drum sets be on bigger stages. Went to school, graduated with a marketing degree. And at that time I was working senior year and then the year after college, I was working at a music store, Alto Music, in Wappingers Falls, New York, on scenic Route 9. It's a wonderful life, right? It is. You know, I'm driving my my Volkswagen Jetta in there every day and selling guitars. And I I didn't think I was going to be there for, you know, the rest of my life, but I just in that sort of like floating, I'm not sure what's going to happen state after college. One of the managers of the store who I'm still in touch with, I still buy things from him and great drummer. And he had played with a songwriter slash guitarist who needed a lead guitar player. And I was like, well, okay, well, I play lead guitar. I was like, that ended up being Chris Cubetta. Uh, so, and yeah. so Chris and I, He's a few years older than I am, and we went to different schools, but he and I grew up probably outside of two miles from each other. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I'd be interested. And he had his first self-titled record out that he did himself, and I would just drive around and, like, listen and listen and listen. He had already been working as an engineer and a producer at this place called Millbrook Sound Studios. I auditioned, I guess, you know, went over there with an acoustic guitar and we just sat facing each other and played and I sang harmonies and managed not to screw up too bad. And we hung out and I was like, all right. He was super into it. He had a house in Poughkeepsie, which was a way cooler spot to hang out than Hopewell Junction. It was just great. Just going down to the basement of this house in Poughkeepsie. He basically with his father, he had dug out the basement floor, they had dug a little bit deeper and they made, they basically made a live room and a control room. Right. We would rehearse in the live room. But then like sometimes he would have, I would be hanging out and he would have uh, like guys over, he would be producing somebody's record. Since we were in the control room where I'm six, four and I would always be like, sounds good, Chris, or, you know, or yeah, it sounds great. So, you know, in addition to playing together and becoming good friends, that's when it clicked for me. That's when I saw somebody make records. I was really, really interested in that aspect of it and, and what went into making all kinds of different records, you know, making, making a hip hop track from scratch, writing and arranging guitar parts for songs where there's already bass and drums and a, a chordal guitar and a vocal melody, recording drums, recording anything. I, I would have recorded my own shoes at that point. I was just so, so into the process. That's our origin story as well, in mm -hmm. essence. I mean, I don't have any idea what year it was, early aughts. Presumably at some point you guys decamped from Poughkeepsie down to Brooklyn. Down to Brooklyn. That was 2000. I moved to Brooklyn September 2005. But before that, Chris had moved down. Chris and his wife had moved down. They used their savings from their wedding. Yeah, they had just gotten married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And took over the lease at the old aluminum foil at 90 Walton Street, which was an empty warehouse. It was probably 2006 or seven at the yeah. latest. In my mind, that place was like established and, but it sounds like it was fairly new in and of itself. It was. And, you know, Chris had some clients. I didn't have any clients, certainly. I was still very much learning. Anytime there was a session happening, 
I moved to the city and worked uh, at Starbucks for, I think I lasted for under two weeks, but I would go there in the morning. I think we closed at like maybe five or six and then just go to the studio. I was in New York at that point, 10 years, Yeah, but they didn't feel like home yet. Yeah. And in fact, me doing that holiday benefit thing was an effort to try and create a little sense of community where I hadn't experienced it before. And I just kind of had this epiphany. I was like, well, what if I just ask, you know what I mean? Which is a pretty good idea. Just ask. Yeah. Rockwood and Aluminum were the two central pillars in the community for a, you know, a solid 20 years thereafter. Really, you guys were, it's almost like a clubhouse. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was like the center of operations for, and I was just, I mean, I'm like a tiny little asterisk or me and a bot or any of my people, but like, no, there's a whole universe cycling through that place. Oh, how does a business like that operate? What does the day to day look like? We had the front half of this 2,500 square foot warehouse in which we built uh, a control room that was moderately sized. It was comfortable, but you weren't going to fit an entire choir in the control room to listen back. We had a 400 square foot live room where you could set up drums, people playing guitars, bass, you know, whatever manner of instruments. There was a piano in there as well. And you could, there were also other smaller isolation rooms where you could plug into a jack on the wall, then that would go to an amp that was elsewhere. And then there was a larger vocal booth as well, where it was separate from all the band making noise and stuff like that. So people could sing. And the idea of that was, it just, it just made the space very versatile saying like, like when we did the, uh, the holiday records, okay, we can record the bass, the drums, the rhythm guitar, the piano, whatever else we can record all those things at once. Everybody has a set of headphones. They can dial in what they're listening to. That type of thing just wouldn't be possible today. We didn't come down there with a trust fund or a gigantic checkbook. The rent was incredibly cheap. We knew that once people came in and worked with any one of us, they would know that we worked really hard. We got good sounds and the price is like pretty darn good. That goes way farther than just trying to say, well, you know what? I think it's going to be $300 an hour and you can only use the snare and the hi-hat. The rest of the drum set is an extra rental. I don't think you can overstate the degree that you were pioneering in that neighborhood. Like I, I can remember walking over there and you're roughly around Marcy. You know, there's like yep. Hasidic Jews driving that weird van around during Purim, like with the oh, music yeah. playing. Like it was a different part of New York altogether. It did not have the vibe of like million dollar condos at all. You felt like you were on the edge of... I did anyway, and I'd lived there for 10 years at that point. You know what I mean? It was a great, great, great experience, yeah. you know? And also it was the most pro place I'd ever been. Biggest, most sophisticated in terms of your collective capabilities. And to your point, everybody was a good dude. It matters a lot when you're having a good time and when the person seems like they actually care about how it turns out it, as opposed makes, to your point, it just being buttons. It makes all the difference. Otherwise, I don't know, they probably have computers that can do that for you now, right? Yeah, yeah, you, you know? do all of it. Anybody that's coming in to make a record, unless you're the most self-assured, confident person in your own artistic capability ever, you're going to be vulnerable. You're going to be doing something that is emotionally intimate. Perhaps you're going to be doing something that isn't just looking cool. It's good to have someone helping you along. You are paying to be there, are invested in it and care and want it to be a good experience. In order to do your best work, you need to feel safe. Do you create a safe space where like, yeah, I know you're going to hit a bum note and I'm not going to laugh about it. I mean, obviously yeah. it would make a big deal out of it, but 
but we're going to find a way to make that okay because right. you got to hit a lot of bum notes. Yeah. You've been there when I've, when I record a guitar on the last record, you know it. You know I have it. heard a clam or two. Yes, a couple, yes, a couple, yes. an entire clam yeah. shack. It sounds like you had some pretty awesome models. You were allowed to be a music fan and they could probably see pretty quickly that you're pretty capable. Now being a parent, it's one of those things that parents are allowed to say. We always knew that you were going to find your way in music. We just, you know, we weren't going to push you in any specific direction. When you're 18, at least for me, the only thing I saw as an option was to be Michael Stipe, right? right, right. And that was it, as opposed to like, there's a whole universe of not only ways to be Michael Stipe in your own way, in your own time, within uh -huh. its own scale, but also there's a whole bunch of other things to do in and around music or performance that can be nearly as meaningful. I mean, I was sitting with you in the studio uh, last summer, we were talking about Psychic TV, mm -hmm. and I just wanted to hear some tour stories. Explain the band and how you came to be, I mean, a 10-year player. Psyche TV started in 1983. It's funny how I came into that orbit. Maybe she'll hear this through the wall. As I will most things, honey, give my then-girlfriend, now-wife credit. One of my wife's best friends, our friend Lila, used to be roommates with the drummer in Psychic TV. Psychic TV went through a number of different phases, a couple of years of inactivity, and then they reformed with a new lineup, including this drummer, in 2003. The drummer, this guy, Eddie, had gotten in touch. I had met him, I think, this was pretty early on when my wife and I started dating. I had met him maybe early 2009, but at a party or like at a bar somewhere. And I think we knew the other was a musician, but it wasn't like... No one was peacocking. No one was like, yeah, dude, let's jam sometime. Eddie asked if I'd be interested in subbing on the last Psychic TV tour because the prior guitar player, the guy who had been in the band for a while, his wife was expecting around that time. So I said, yeah. He's like, well, do you know the stuff? I was like, I, I, was, I was loosely familiar. I wasn't, I was familiar with Robin Gristle. I knew some of the stuff. There's about 7,000 records, <laughs> roughly, you know, there's a lot of stuff to go through. So much like when I learned Chris's stuff before, I got my hands on it and listened and listened and, and just tried to put as much of it in here and these hand things and went to the audition, played, and they said, okay, cool. Do you have a passport? And I was like, well, no, I haven't really, haven't really been anywhere. So rushed the passport. And we did a two-week tour of Europe. And every night, Genesis would say from the stage, this is the last Psychic TV tour. This is my last concert. At that point, she wanted to retire and focus more on visual art. 
because when I joined the band, Jen was 59, 60, and had been touring and doing that thing for a really long time. And in comes this, okay, guys, like, I'll come play some guitar, no problem. I don't know what it was like for you the first time you went to Europe. And I'd always wanted to travel. We just didn't have the opportunity when we were kids for the most part, you know, certainly not to Europe. And just being like, okay, I, I had the travel bug, but also, and I had been on, you know, tours at that point, but this was a different story. We weren't sleeping on a promoter's floor or, you know, crashing somewhere. Like there were always hotels. We were always treated nicely. We got to fly between shows and it was... It was an amazing way to see that continent. And then we got back to New York two weeks later. And I think we had gotten, all of us got together at a party just to like trade photos. And then we were talking about maybe recording something. And I was like, well, <laughs> I have a recording studio. And then we just, we just kept going, you know, up until Jen passed at the very start of the pandemic. It was basically the first weekend New York shut down. And we had considerably slowed down since then because Jen, uh, she was sick with leukemia and, you know, was having health issues at that point. But up until, you know, 2009 to like 2018, 2019 even, we were still playing a bunch. Maybe you felt differently about this. Like, I don't know if you had the, the urge, you know, when you were 21, 22, 23, 43 of like, all right, cool. I just want to like get in the van and tour forever. I'm just going to play to like five people in a dive bar, but it'll be fun. We wouldn't go on tour for months at a time because Jen, again, she was in a much better health back then, but was not interested in like, oh, let's go away for two months. We would go to Europe maybe twice a year for two, three weeks at a time and then do, you know, maybe some fly-in dates here or there. It was perfect though, because I could still make records. I could still come back to Brooklyn and be like, hey, Ben, all right, cool. You know, I got, yep. I, I'm going to be away, you know, the last two weeks of August, but like, I'll catch up with you when we get back and we can, we can book. And it was an incredible situation to walk into, not only for my own, you know, scheduling and career ambitions, but also just the creative side of it, obviously, and just getting the opportunity to go to Russia five times and being able to go to Australia and being able to play all around Europe and play all around the world, basically, on the merit of being able to play music with people. I never took that for granted. I was always really, 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 and I still am really thankful for that. It's incredible that I had that opportunity and it was luck. It was luck and I was prepared. That's the dream. Because, you know, those 45 or hour and a half on stage is usually just payment enough. Even better, if you can reduce the friction of the Econoline band and the sort of like waiting around part, I mean, that's just really is living the dream. And if you can work with somebody who, and I'd love to hear a little bit about Jen, who's like a legit legend, what it was like working with her and what she was like and sort of what you learned about the culture or the business or moreover the process of being an artist your whole life. I was familiar with a bunch of the psychic TV stuff, the hits, but I wasn't fully, fully, you know, like, oh yeah, oh, oh, that, this obscure, you know, B-side from 1984. Yeah, of course. I could recite the lyrics in French and I can't speak French. Yeah. If I was a bigger fan, I would have been more intimidated because I didn't quite realize the scope of how incredible she was. Jen was, you know, I mean, it, like anybody, you know, could be 
moody or temperamental or just tired from traveling, but also was really funny, really, really funny. And that's what, part of what made that whole situation so great for such a long time is that we were like, you know, as, as cliches as it sounds, we were like a family. We cared about each other and we used to laugh. And when you're traveling, you know this, it's like you're stuck, you know, oh, okay, cool. There's this layover is now extended and all oh, we got to go to this next gate and oh, we get here. And, you know, the promoter is saying that there's only half of a drum kit there. And uh, strangely enough, the entire catering in the dressing room is just a huge pack of pepperoni or you know, like, <laughs> like being able to laugh at this stuff and sort of take it all in stride and, and not just be, put it this way. I started as work for hire. You're hiring me to come in and play the guitar for this tour. And I left with, you know, family members. I'm, I left with people. Uh, I was able to bring my friend John in, who uh, is a wonderful musician in general. He came in to play keyboards. I mean, he's my daughter's godfather. Alice, the uh, bass player, is one of my favorite people in the universe. She has a new project that I just finished working on. It's called Of Stars. Pick it up today, folks. But working with Jen was... Her, we worked off of each other a lot. I think the way that the band was structured, she really responded lyrically and 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 just sort of emotionally to what what was happening in Guitar Town, and, and that was something that clearly, like coming in, I was like, okay, cool. I have to learn this stuff and execute it in a certain way, and and not, but also realizing that it's not hey, like, here's the guitar player. It's like, no, this is, people are coming to see Jen. Yes, it's Psychic TV, but they're coming to see Jen. And that's, for me, as someone that has never wanted to lead their own band, I've always been like, all right, I will be the guitar player in this band. I was like, this is pretty ideal. Jen was way more interested in still, still creating something new and doing something different. And I took that as such an inspiration watching somebody that could arguably had uh, one of the biggest sets of laurels to rest on that I have I've worked with, right? Who could easily be like, oh, you know, here's for the hits for you and could do that. And she just was not interested in that. She wanted to just keep going forward and keep creating stuff. And Jen would just, in a way that I haven't seen anybody, certainly anybody I've worked with and most artists I've seen in general, the facility with words and the ability to construct something out of thin air. And then us as a band be able to follow her. That incredible presence that that person exuded on the microphone and could hold over somebody. And none of us in the band were thinking about, oh, well, we have to go to an F sharp major seven here. It's like, no, we're just reacting emotionally. And that's my favorite part of playing music anyway, when you're not sort of, uh, when you put down the calculator or the uh, the slide rule and you're just like, oh, it's fine. I'm not thinking about it. You know, absence of conscious thought. I've recorded like the better part of my last few albums with you. Like certainly yeah. all of my vocals. I mean, it really went from a little bit to all of it, yeah. generally speaking, right? Like, yes, I got some band tracks down in Muscle Shoals. Yep. And a lot of that for the record is your temperament, uh, the environment that you create, the way that you create this sense of like, you know, we're going to push towards excellence and we're going to hold a high standard of expectation around what I think we're capable of, mm -hmm. but we're also not going to take it so goddamn, goddamn seriously that it's a drag or it's like, you know, you hear about like bean horn or something making you do the snare sound until everybody wants to cut their heads off. You know, mm -hmm. it's a way to talk about how you do what you do in a way that I can understand it. But like, 
this record, we didn't have a lot of context. I didn't walk in saying, this is what we're doing. Right. You know, we kind of found our way through it together. It's so situation dependent for me. It's entirely different having a band of four people where I just saw their last gig or they sent me iPhone demos of, you know, a recording in the rehearsal room. It's entirely, that's entirely different than, it's different because I know you and I've known you for a long time than you coming in being like, okay, I don't have, you know, the arrangements to uh, a bunch of the tunes that we recorded together. They're, they're not flushed out, but here are the players. The way that we recorded wherever you go. Okay, so we were set up live in the B room. We had, what, Jamie on drums. Yep. Mr. Tony Maselli on the bass. And we also talked about having daughters. Yeah. A lot yeah. of daughter talk. And then, a lot of daughters between us, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then Dan, uh, Dan Golden on piano. And then Abad, Chris Abad, our buddy, came in later that day and just like laid down some guitar. I was just like, yeah. And yeah. PMAD with his like. Oh yeah, Ebo. that's right. Paul on 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 the uh, on the Ebo like yeah. the haunting etherealness. We were able to set all of them up. Plus, plus you. I'm not going to forget you, Ben. Plus, uh, plus you on <laughs> plus on, me playing C, F, and G. Hey, over and look, over and that's over. <laughs> that's that's how songs go. Okay, yeah, that's how music goes. We had everybody set up together. Everybody had a pair of headphones. The the way that that particular song is laid out it kind of connects to, it is C, F, and G, and that's fine. We all know those chords, but the reason why it feels that way is because everybody sort of sensed the situation where it was a tension and release there, and it's restrained. It's absolutely not about, check it out. Let's see how many notes I can play in the intro of the song, and everything is pulled back. And it, it really, it really takes so much, you know, experience and maturity to be able to you know, the tune really starts to pick up dynamically, really takes its first step up in the bridge, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then like it pulls back out and there's that instrumental coda and then it pulls back out like last verse, last chorus, and then we have the, the ride out. But I think to be able to sustain something, a mood like that for that long, it's because the people that were you were playing with, you brought in to play with you, were keyed into what you were doing vocally. That arrangement lets the vocal just be right there and the the sentiment be right there, which arguably it should. It's that type of song. Like everything that's happening is supporting the vocal, the vocal performance in the melody. Yeah, and the idea around it, I think. Right? Exactly. I'm glad you chose that one because first it's the album closer. Second, I think it's, it's where I arrive editorially. In other words, it's the there in the end of the journey. It's the place where I think our protagonist ends up, which is mm -hmm. me. Um, which is the realization that like you are who you are wherever you are and this is who you are today and that's cool and yeah. fine because you know i had moved and i and i was just going through well, what's my identity if i'm not a new yorker i'm not this executive globetrotter yeah who am i and what matters and you know in a lot of ways the answer comes back to you guys and those guys yeah and what we all made together yeah. i had no idea it would end sound like that like i mean jamie just goes how about a kind of train thing yeah. that's what he called that you know and i was like sure and once we did it once yeah i was like oh that is magic mm -hmm. and a, a few people have heard heard it now and everybody loves that one above all because of the vibe so talk about how we built it out because that was really you and me 
I don't know if I said this out loud, but I think I was like, you know, like beta band, it builds and builds and builds and right. builds it. Or Sgt. Pepper, like, you know, right. day in the life. It's got all that without yeah. the piano dropping. You know exactly. I mean? We did your vocals, I think, before doing like the overdub stuff. It's one of those cases where, you know, for the first like two thirds of the song, you strip it all back and let the vocal performance and the lyric and the sentiment come through. That just sets you up. And then again, when that bridge comes in and then there's a lift and then you like, you're like, oh, okay, well, we're going, we're going somewhere else. Okay. And then we drop down and then there's this sort of like, we cruise through that instrumental section and gradually after the breakdown, in the last chorus, it starts to get a little bit larger. Then we're really just taking control of the dynamics there. We're u- utilizing dynamics in a way that's not, not like, oh, quiet, quiet verse, loud chorus, you know. A lot of the shape of the ending came from Dan's piano, like the ideas that you had for him to play. And if you remember, I was a little worried you might strangle me at that point. Remember when I was like, no, he's, he's got things in there that I want to keep, yeah. but I want to create him. I want to order them in a way that yeah. he didn't order them. Yeah. Like he was riffing. Yeah. And I was like, he is too free. Yeah. It needed structure. And I still laugh when I listen to it because it builds. Yeah within some almost mathematical formula. I mean, it's got repetition, but it yeah. builds like a staircase, you know? Absolutely. The secret to your producing and engineering is also that, at least as far as I'm concerned, not only do you coax a wonderful performance and do I feel comfortable and have a good time, but I always know like, like there's a hookmeister in the room, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and like not, they're tasty because you never, I mean, I've never heard you overdo it. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Thank you. They're never like, oh, I mean, you know, like it's, it's like what Chris Abad, oh, he would always be like, that's not a solo, that's a part. And I'm like, that's why I like it. Do right. you know what I mean? Like, I love parts, you know, things that feel like uh, patterns. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Like, Thank you. Thank you. I, I will add that the those two guitar parts, I which I'm proud of at the end, that's actually electric bazooki. <laughs> not, a, right. not even a guitar. <laughs> so, you know... If anybody needs an electric bazooki player. I forgot. I love that. It's like, I, yeah. I was like, where's that Nashville guitar? And you're like, no Nashville guitar no, on this. No Nashville. It's just a weird bazooki. Yeah. It's so situation based. It's like, I don't, you know, something like that feels way more appropriate. I know that's also where you come from in terms of like you were just explaining, you like parts. It can be a guitar part, doesn't, but it doesn't have to be sort of the guitar Olympics. Like, check it out. Check it out. See, I mean, see what I did? See what I did? Were you listening to the rest of the song? What would you tell that 11-year-old picking up the guitar for the first time or that younger boy falling asleep with the headphones on? Like, what would you tell him with the wisdom of your years today? Oh, yeah. Well, it gets easier, you know, without sounding super mystical about it. There, There are so many different ways to involve your life, you know, or one's life in the arts and be part of making art. I thought it was for a very long time as a young kid, I'm going to be a rock star in a band or, or that's, that's it. That's what happens, right? But I didn't know that there was a whole other world out there and a way to really connect and help people make art in a way that is so, so fulfilling on so many different levels. You know, being able to listen, listen to the thing that you just made. Uh, my friend calls it getting high on your own supply. As cliche as it sounds, I would say there's more out there than what you are envisioning right now. There's even more out there.
Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Thank you.